Okay. Well, once again, it's a joy to be with you and this morning to share God's Word. Yesterday afternoon, evening, we had the pleasure of seeing some of you around the table. Had a wonderful meal. Thank you so much to everybody that brought that food. We went home absolutely bloated. And I'm sure there was as much left as came in the first place. So thank you so much for that. It was wonderful to be with you. We thoroughly enjoyed it and we pray that you did too. As we looked at Messiah in the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's really the subject this morning is Messiah in the Feast of Tabernacles. Now I'd like to begin by opening God's word in Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. And we'll read from verses 34 through to 44. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Lord. On the first day shall be an holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein. Seven days ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. On the eighth day shall be an holy convocation unto you, and ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It is a solemn assembly, and ye shall do no servile work therein. These are the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord, a burnt offering and a meat offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings every day upon this day. Beside the Sabbaths of the Lord, and beside your gifts, and beside all your vows, and beside all your free will offerings which ye give unto the Lord. Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when ye have gathered in the fruit of the land, ye shall keep a feast unto the Lord seven days. And on the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. And ye shall take you on the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palm trees, and the boughs of thick trees, and willows of the brook. And ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. And ye shall keep it a feast unto the Lord seven days in the year. It shall be a statute for ever in your generations. Ye shall celebrate it in the seventh month. Ye shall dwell in booths seven days. All that are Israelites born shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And Moses declared unto the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. Let's just give this time to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your blessed word. Lord, we can learn so much as we read your word. And we do pray, Lord, as we study your word this morning and we look at this Feast of Tabernacles, that we would not just understand the feast, Lord, but to see how it points prophetically to those days when you'll return as Messiah the second time. Help us to see, Lord, with open eyes. Help us to have open hearts and ears to hear your word. And we pray that you will bless the public reading of your word to our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So in chapter 23, Moses instructs the children of Israel regarding the feasts of the Lord. And these feasts are of tremendous significance to both Jew and Gentile. To the Jewish people, they're reminders of God's grace in delivering them from the captivity in Egypt. To believers, both Jew and Gentile, they remind us of our own deliverance from the slavery of sin into the freedom of forgiveness by the abundant grace of God 
and also the hope and promise of eternal life that was bought by the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, our Saviour, Jesus Christ, on that cross in Calvary. The three main feasts, that's, the, that's Passover, which in Hebrew is Pesach, the Feast of Weeks, or as we would know it, Pentecost, the Hebrew Feast of Shavuot, and Tabernacles, the Feast of Sukkot, are also known as pilgrim festivals. And Jewish people would travel long distances to celebrate them at the temple in Jerusalem. And it's important for us also to understand these feasts, to understand, because they help us to understand the history of Israel, the time of the coming of our Lord, and importantly, the end of the age. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, how do they do this? Well, first of all, they mark three seasons in time regarding the fruits of the earth. At Passover, it's the time of the first green ears of barley being cut, and a handful were presented to the Lord as a wave offering. Fifty days later, at Shavuot, before harvesting the ripe wheat, it was sanctified by its first fruits when two loaves of fine flour were offered to the Lord. And then Tabernacles was a feast of joyful thanksgiving for all of the fruits of the field that had been gathered in, giving it its other name, the Feast of Ingathering. They also marked three periods of Israel's past history. Passover commemorates deliverance from Egypt when the Lord passed over Israel, protecting and sparing them from the destroying angel, and giving them the first step of independent national life as God's covenant people. Shavuot Weeks traditionally marks the giving of the law on Sinai. And then Tabernacles commemorates the establishment of God's people in the land of promise after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and living in tents. And prophetically, they're foreshadows of three grand events of the gospel kingdom. Passover points to Jesus, the Paschal Lamb who was sacrificed for us. Pentecost, Shavuot, weeks, points to the Holy Spirit descending on Christ's disciples. And then Tabernacles tells of our own ingathering, the end of our wanderings, and the promise of an eternal home and rest. The Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot, follows the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. Last week was the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The week before that it was the Feast of, we- uh, Feast of Trumpets and um, Today, or this week rather, has been Tabernacles, Sukkot. Yesterday was the last day of Sukkot. And Sukkot, Tabernacles, is mentioned many times in the Hebrew Scriptures. We read in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 34, that the Lord commands the Feast of Tabernacles to be kept for seven days, beginning on the 15th day of the Jewish month of Tishri. That normally falls in September or October in our calendar. And it's immediately after the ingathering, as I've mentioned earlier, of the citrus and olive harvests, giving it that alternative name of Feast of Ingathering. In verses 35 and 36, we're given some detail about the celebration. On verse 35, we read that on the first day shall be in holy convocation. Ye shall do no servile work therein. Seven days ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. On the eighth day shall be a holy convocation unto you, and you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. It's a solemn assembly, and you'll do no servile work therein. On the first day, verse 39, shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. So the first and the eighth day of the feast were Sabbath days, and no servile work was to be done. 
And in verses 41 and 42, the Lord commanded that the Feast of Tabernacles be kept every year as a statute forever in your generations. And that every Israelite must dwell in booths for seven days. So a couple more questions that we need to ask here. Why a statute forever and why seven days? Well, the answer is given to us in verse 43. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And it's through this physical act of remembrance that future generations would know that the, what the Lord did for their forebears. And that continues year after year and has been for the last couple of thousand years and will continue until the time that the Lord determines. They would understand that after the Lord had delivered them from Pharaoh, the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years and throughout that time they had to depend on God. If you remember, they had no regular food except the manna, the quail that the Lord provided, and the Lord provided water from the rock. And they were also dependent upon God to show them the way that they should go. And if you remember, he provided a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so it was that the children of Israel were dependent on God for both his provision and his presence. Something which... We need also to remember, don't we? We need to remember that we also rely on God's provision and his presence in our daily lives. And we need to be thankful for that presence and provision. In verse 40 of chapter 23, the Lord instructed that these temporary booths, the Hebrew word for that is sukkah, the plural sukkot, in which they were to dwell for the duration of the feast, He said how they should be made. They should be made from the boughs of goodly trees, or another way of putting it, the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees and the boughs of thick trees and willows of the brook. Ezra the priest gives us a little bit more detail about those materials in Nehemiah chapter 8 verse 15. He says, fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths as it is written. But the bottom line is that every sukkah must be temporary. It's a reminder that they had no permanent dwelling in the desert when they were on their wanderings. And even today, Jewish people around the world would build a sukkah on their property and in their synagogue. And here's a picture of some booths that people would build in Israel. These are modern ones. And you'll see how they... Um, one after the other, piled high, they're on people's balconies, they're on the ground, they're everywhere. The roofs are often made of bamboo poles covered with wonderfully beautiful evergreen branches and they'd be arranged in such a way that one could look up and see the stars and the evening sky shining through. Today, whilst many Orthodox Jews will both eat and sleep in their sukkah, even the non-observant Jews will often keep Sukkot, and most families will at least have one or two meals in their sukkah. And here's a picture of a family in their, in their sukkah. It's rather a large, elaborate one, this one. You can get a lot of people into that one, but some of them are quite small and simple. Now, according to Jewish tradition, there was controversy between the Sadducees and the Pharisees concerning the building of these booths. The Sadducees believed that the boughs of the goodly trees referred to the actual material used for building of these sukkah. 
The Pharisees, on the other hand, believed that the branches were meant to be carried by the celebrating people, and these are called lulav. I should have brought one in from the car because uh, we had some beautiful lulavs made for us last night, but I've got a picture of some coming up shortly, so we'll certainly see what they look like. And so you had this controversy between the Sadducees and the Pharisees over what these materials would be used for, and eventually a compromise was reached, and the booths were constructed of branches, But people made lulav from the branches of the myrtle, the palm and the willow to carry and to wave during the celebrations. And as well as the lulav, modern observances of tabernacles also involves a large lemon-like fruit called an etrog. And the rabbis identify this etrog, this citrus fruit, with the fruit of the goodly tree, which is that alternative translation that I gave you there. And here you've got a picture of um, an etrog, and a lulav, or part of a lulav. They hold these etrog very highly. They can pay a lot of money for those etrogs. And the etrog, the palm, the myrtle, and the willow are known as the four species of Sukkot. And in verse 40 of chapter 23, the Lord commands the people to rejoice before him. And on each day of tabernacles, people stand facing toward Jerusalem, holding a lulav in the right hand and an etrog in the left hand. And here's a picture of people at the Western Wall. You can see the size of the lulav here, and you can see the gentleman there. And just about make out holding the etrog in his left. And then they would shake that lulav toward the north, which I'm reliably involved is that way. They'd shake it that way. They'd shake it to the south. They'd shake it to the east. And to the west, and then they would shake it downward toward the earth and upward toward the heavens. And while they were doing that, they would recite special prayers called Hoshanot. And then they would cry out a prayer from Psalm 118, verse 25. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. And that's what they would do. At the feast, and it's something about what we did last night. People were very good at shaking those lulavs last night. I was surprised they stayed in one piece, actually, but it was good. Back in biblical times, as well as the daily offerings that they had to bring to the tabernacle and the temple, there were specific additional sacrifices at the time of tabernacles, and you'll see those detailed in Numbers chapter 29, verses 12 through 34. We won't go through all of those verses, it will take us too long. So let me summarize. On the first day, they were to make a burnt offering of 13 young bullocks. On the second day, 12 bullocks. On the third day, it was 11, and so on, until they got to the seventh day when they were to sacrifice seven young bullocks. So that makes a total, if you add it all up, of 70 bullocks being offered on the altar during the feast. And in addition to those 70 bullocks, each day they had to offer two rams and 14 lambs and a goat. And so if we add the number of rams and lambs and goats Over those seven days, that comes to the total of 119. And if you add that to the number of bulls, it brings us to a total number of 189 animals having to be sacrificed over those seven days. That's a lot of animals, isn't it? And in addition to these large number of sacrifices, there were two unique ceremonies that they had during the Feast of Tabernacles that are not in any of the other feasts. The first one is known as the water libation. During the second temple period, each morning, the high priest, he would be dressed in his full ceremonial vestments. He would carry a golden pitcher, an empty pitcher, and he would lead a procession of the Levites, the worshippers, the musicians, and 
everybody would go down this route from the temple to the pool of Siloam. And if you've ever been to Israel, there's a picture up on the screen on the left-hand side. There's also one on the right. The route from the temple down to the pool of Siloam is downhill. It's about half a mile. And over recent years, they've not only... Um, in fact, just this year, they've been started to excavate the whole of the Pool of Siloam. If you go to the uh, City of David website, there's a number of videos you can see there on YouTube. But I've highlighted roughly the area of the ancient City of David in red on the left-hand side. You can see it also on the right, but it's an overlay of the modern uh, City of Jerusalem. And then in yellow, you've got what we know today as the Pilgrim's Road. And if ever you go to Israel, or if you've been to Israel and down to the Pool of Siloam, you may, if you've gone back up to look behind you towards the Temple Mount, you will have seen some steps that have been exposed. They've now exposed all of those steps. Nobody believed they existed, but the Bible reveals itself through archaeology. You know, no matter what people say about the Bible not being true, about it all about Israel being a lie, no completely the opposite it's just that they want to cover it up because they don't want to accept the truth do they but you've got that there and you've got the picture there of on this one here I think yes there we go Um, on the left hand side you'll see the pool of Siloam as it as it was on the right hand side if you can see on the left hand side that picture at the bottom you can see some of the excavations that are taking place They've, they've been recently able to buy the land that most of the Pool of Siloam was under. Now, this is Herod's Pool of Siloam, not the original one. This is the second temple pool, but it's the one that they're seeing, and they're trying to find some of the original down below. But you can see on the top pictures there, the Pilgrim's Road. Now, that isn't actually the Pilgrim's Road in its entirety. It's only a tiny, narrow portion of it. But it's the actual steps going up to the southwest corner of the Temple Mount that the Jewish people would go. And so what would happen is that the priest would go down to the Pool of Siloam, he'd dip this golden pitcher into the water, and he'd fill it up, and then they'd lead all of that procession back up to the temple. When they got there, the priest would sing or shout, with joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. And then another golden vessel would be filled with wine and they pour the water and the wine through silver funnels into a basin and that mixed water and wine would flow down into the Kidron Brook near the eastern wall of the city. And that ritual pouring out of the water symbolised the prayer for the autumn rains upon which Israel depended and still does depend just as much as everybody depends upon water. It's vital. And so the prayer is that the rain wouldn't fail. But beyond that, physical need for water there's a profoundly prophetic aspect to this ritual because it pictures the coming of the messiah and his kingdom in which the holy spirit will be poured on israel and believers of all nations isaiah chapter 12 verses 2 and 3 we read here behold god is my salvation that word for salvation in hebrew if you want to look it up in strongs it's hebrew number 3444 and you'll actually see it as translated as Yeshua or Yeshua T. There's different, slightly different versions of the word. But that word for salvation is essentially Yeshua. Behold, God is my Yeshua. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my Yeshua, my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. On that final day of the feast, the eighth day, the people would gather at the temple with a lulav in their right hand and an etrog in their left. And here you can see 
A delightful Jewish man here with his etrog. That's not the biggest one I've seen in pictures, but it's certainly a size, isn't it? We get some lemons from the market in Chesham where we live, which are quite big. They're bigger than the ones with the tiny ones you get in the supermarket. But they're only about, I don't know, less than a quarter of the size of that one. And they're still twice the size of the supermarket ones sometimes. And so they would gather there, and as the final libations of the water and wine were poured out, the priests would sing the Hillel Psalm, Psalms 113 to 118, and remember God's mercies to Israel and praising him for his greatness. And as the singing would draw to a close, several priests holding willow branches would march once around the great altar and then vigorously shake those willow branches and beat them against the ground. And as they beat them against the ground, the leaves would come off. And that would symbolically represent the casting away of Israel's sins. And then they would recite again Psalm 118 verse 25. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. That final day of the feast is called the day of the great Hosanna and it has special messianic significance. In Hebrew, the words save now from Psalm 118 verse 25 are yashana or Hosanna. And we all know how we sing Hosanna, don't we? And that final part of the last Hillel Psalm is known as the Great Hosanna. In the early days, Jews from the Diaspora would gather at Jerusalem and go up to the temple to celebrate. And, and even today, and even just before this recent horrendous terrorist invasion, there would have been thousands of people in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was a a joyous occasion. In fact, it is a joyous occasion. It was even just up until Friday evening a joyous occasion. And the rabbis say, he who has not seen Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles does not know what rejoicing means. And so now, having understood something of the Feast of Tabernacles in the Hebrew Scriptures, let's turn to the New Testament and the Gospel of John and chapter 7. And it was on this last great day of the feast as the water and wine was poured from the golden vessels and the Hillel Psalms that speak of salvation and the Messiah were being sung that the hope of those present was perhaps at the very highest as they proclaimed that great Hosanna, Hoshana, save now. And it was at that time on that last day of the feast we read in the scriptures that Jesus went into the temple. John records the word of Jesus in verses 37 and 38 of John chapter 7. He said, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So picture it, the water and the wine had finally been poured out, the great Hosanna had been sung, and Jesus is there in the temple, and essentially what he's saying to them is, look, here I am, I'm that Messiah, I am the Messiah, I'm the answer to your prayers. And we read, don't we, sadly in verses 40 to 43 of John 7, that many of the people therefore when they heard this saying said, of a truth this is the prophet. But look at the rest of that verse. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? 
Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? And so there was division among the people because of him. The question is, could this be the Messiah? Some had recognized Jesus as the Christ, but this didn't result in a unanimous acceptance. There's an article in a a very early edition of the Israel My Glory magazine back in 2001 written by one of our staff, Peter Cologne. And he says this, he says, a second, and we're going now to a second ceremony. We mentioned the fact that there were two. One was the water libation. He says, a second fascinating ceremony associated with the Feast of Tabernacles involved lights. Each afternoon of the seven days, priests and pilgrims gathered at the court of the women. Four large oil lamps illuminated the court, and it was said that the light from these lamps was so bright it penetrated every courtyard in Jerusalem. And as the women watched from the upper terraces, the men of piety and good works used to dance before the oil lamps with burning torches in their hands, singing songs and praises. Meanwhile, countless Levites played on harps, lyres, cymbals and trumpets and the instruments of music. Peter's there quoting from the Jewish source, from the Mishnah, from Sukkot 5 verse 4. And he goes on to say the light festivities carried, continued all night until dawn. According to Jewish oral tradition, those golden candlesticks were 50 cubits high. That's about 75 feet. And the golden bowls on the top of those lamps were holding about seven and a half gallons of oil. Forgive me, I'm of the old school. I don't know how many litres that is, but I'm sure if you want to multiply that up by however many litres, you'll be able to work it out. And the priests and the Levites, it said, used their worn-out liturgical clothing for wicks. And as we say, that light was so bright it would light up all the courtyards in Jerusalem. And the illumination from these imposing temple lamps, as Peter Colon goes on to say, symbolized two realities. The first was the reality of the light of all lights, the Shekinah or Shekinah glory, the visible presence of God that filled the first temple which Solomon built. And we can read of that in 1 Kings 8 verses 10 and 11. If we read that, those verses, it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah of the Lord, had filled the house of the Lord. Peter goes on to say the second reality was the Ha'or Gadol, the great light, who would come, soon come and bring light to those who were spiritually dead and dwelling in darkness. And that comes from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, which we also read in Matthew 4, verse 16. But the Isaiah passage, verse, verse 2 of chapter 9, says, The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. And so the day after the feast, Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives and he proclaimed to the scribes and the Pharisees in chapter 8 of the Gospel of John and verse 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Jesus was effectively saying, I am that Shekinah glory. He's proclaiming his messiahship. 
And in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And the profound significance of what we've just read, of what Jesus said at the temple at that time, we can only appreciate that if we understand the rites and symbols, the the, the symbology of the Feast of Tabernacles. By understanding all of that, it opens that scripture out to us, doesn't it? And it helps us to understand how important it is for us to understand the feasts that the Lord proclaimed for Israel. And so we see that the Feast of Tabernacles is a harvest of thanksgiving. It's a national commemoration of redemption. And then thirdly, it's a glimpse into the future when the Lord gathers the nations in the messianic kingdom of his blessed son, the Lord Jesus. But finally, there's one further fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles that's yet to come. And we can see this in Zechariah chapter 14. If you're nimble-fingered and you want to go to Zechariah chapter 14, it's verses 16 and 17, but they're up on the screen there. And we read there, And it shall come to pass that every year one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. These verses look ahead to the time of our Lord's second advent, that time when he comes the second time to this earth and sits on the throne of David on earth as king. And at the moment we know that he's sitting on the right hand of his father in his role is priest, isn't he? Great high priest. But he's going to come back and his role of king will be fulfilled when he sits on the throne of David. But it's important to understand that this kingdom has yet to be realized. We're not in the kingdom now and it's only after Jesus returns the second time that that kingdom will be set up. Jesus hasn't withdrawn the offer of the kingdom to Israel. He's postponed it. And one day that offer will be represented and Israel will be there ready to receive it. Hallelujah. And so after his second coming, when he's ruling and reigning from the throne of David, what we read there in Zechariah is is that delegates, where it says there, every one that is left of all the nations, it's effectively we're talking about delegates. I don't think we'd have all of the nations and everybody coming to Jerusalem. But delegations have to come to Jerusalem and... Those were the nations originally that came against Jerusalem. Remember, all nations are going to come against Jerusalem. There will be no exception. But they'll be obliged to come to the city to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, under the law of Moses, only Jews are obliged to keep the feast. But in the millennium, all nations will be obliged to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And for those that disobey... There'll be a punishment. The Lord will withhold the rain. And so we can see that the Feast of Tabernacles, or in the Feast of Tabernacles, we can symbolically see Christ in all his glory, through the shedding of blood, through the pouring out of water and wine, and through the illumination of the temple. And then finally we see the great Hosanna, the Yeshanah, save now. And if you're, if you're in Zechariah 14, in verse 9, 
We read there that the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day there shall be one Lord and his name one. Not only does tabernacles have great significance to the Jewish people as a time of remembrance every year, but for us as believers, the three main features of that feast are fulfilled in Jesus. At Sukkot or booths or tabernacles, Jesus is God among the, in flesh who tabernacled among men. John chapter 1 verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. That word for dwelt is tabernacled if we read it. He tabernacled among us. He came and dwelt among men at his first coming, and he's going to dwell among men at his second. <gasps> Secondly, there's water. Jesus invites all to come to him for life and refreshment. John chapter 7, 37. If we remember in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And then thirdly, we see Jesus as the source of, for life and light, just as we see those lights in the temple. And in verse 12 of the 8th chapter of John's Gospel, we read that Jesus spoke again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And as we've said earlier, the rabbis say, he who has not seen Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles does not know what rejoicing means. And so as we close, turn with me, if you will, please, to another scripture that refers to a tabernacle. And that's in the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 9. Letter to the Hebrews, chapter 9. Unlike the temporary tabernacle of the wilderness, we read here of a permanent and perfect tabernacle. Beginning in the 11th verse of Hebrews chapter 9. But Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not made with hands, that is to say not of this building. Neither by the blood of goats and cows, but by his own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by the means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal life. A more permanent and perfect tabernacle, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord's promise in John chapter 3, verses 15 through 18, verses that are familiar to all of us, I'm sure. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God.
There's something all of us have to do in order to gain eternal life, and that's to believe on Jesus, the only begotten Son of God. There's no formula needed. There's no specific prayers needed. You need to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can say a prayer if you like. There's nothing wrong with that. But the essential thing is you believe and trust in who the Lord Jesus is, that he came to this earth as man, that he lived, that he died on that cross and he rose again to be with his father on the third day. That's our resurrection guaranteed. One day we will go to be with the Lord, won't we, when he comes to meet us in the air, if we know him, if we believe him, and if we trust him. I don't know all of you here. I don't know who's on the stream. But if there's anybody that hasn't yet taken that step of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, anybody who is not sure of their eternal destiny with the Lord, remember, eternal life is guaranteed to everybody, no exception. The question is, where will you or where will I spend eternity? Do we choose to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and spend eternity in a place where there's no more death, no more tears, no more, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering? Revelation 21 verse 4, very badly paraphrased, I'm afraid. But a wonderful promise. And if that's, if that's you, if you haven't yet taken that step, I urge you, if you're in this room today, not to leave without speaking with Pastor Kevin, or if you're online, to call the church and speak to the pastor. Because only Jesus can give us that eternal life. Only he is capable of saving us from the power of sin and death. May the Lord's word be sealed in our hearts and draw us ever closer to him. Just a very quick commercial. We've been talking about the Feasts of Israel on the book table out there. There is one called The Gospel in the Feasts of Israel, written by Victor Buxbazen, who was one of our earliest um, founders. Victor was a Polish Jew, spoke about eight languages, spent his life preaching the gospel. And another one is The Outpouring, telling of Jesus in the Feasts of Israel. And they're there on the book table outside. But I'll hand back to Pastor Kevin and say thank you so much for the joy of being in fellowship with you this morning. Maggie and I have really enjoyed it. Thank you.